0: It's the end of the
1: world as we know it, and I feel fine. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and airplanes, yeah, many brutes, not afraid. I have a hurricane, listen to yourself, the world, but you don't need something, give your own hands. beat it up, and that's what got, no excuse, The ladder, put the clatter, with the fear of fight, down tight, fire in a fire, listen to the gangs, gang, the government, for hiring a combat site, But you wasn't coming in a hurry,
0: the fury carry it down your neck the border, Trump, the with that low plane, flying them. the world, me. me it. the, the right. it, the It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy.
1: This is the
0: hour of doom. Oh, yeah.
1: Quite possibly, though.
0: Oh, could we? It, you,
1: <laughs> <yep>. <laughs>
0: Every day it seems we're a little closer to Just that. Just craziness, uh-huh.
1: craziness. Yep. But you know what? It is also the hour of bloom.
0: You're absolutely right. You gotta look at the bright side of life.
1: Yeah. <laughs> good. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually a very good whistler, good. folks. That's Try that I'm again. Good. Dude. Good for you, that's why the bird's such a good whistler That's
0: right Hey friends, oh yeah Oh hey friends and neighbors Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour A second of serenity in a seditious world I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net Where you'll find over 900 closing in on 1,000 really Post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster
1: Seriously, we're not at 1,000 yet?
0: I'm moving along How, fa- how close are we? I'm getting there, no, I'm getting there How close are we? Probably 20 short or so
1: We'll get to writing. For I am. I'm sakes. working
0: on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> and I'm Every Amy week, Alton. More.
1: I am a registered nurse practitioner, advanced registered nurse practitioner, and a certified nurse midwife, also known as Nurse Amy.
0: And we are the gang of two. We are the dynamic duo, and we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident (laughs) with an egregious grasshopper? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this.
1: Of course, you have to tell me to say this right after I have peanut butter. Oh,
0: yeah, a little peanut (laughs) butter sandwich. But by the way, thanks for my peanut butter and jelly. sandwich. yeah. Uh, It's a great dinner. I love it. And folks,
1: I'll have to tell you, he surprised me and put it on raisin bread. Yeah. I don't think I've ever had peanut butter and jelly. I
0: know. (laughs) <laughs> with yep. little gourmet surprised. exotic food. Oh, you know it would
1: make it better though. At if the Alton, Alton household. If yes. you would have toasted it.
0: Oh, I should. And had a And I didn't. Warm peanut butter. And I, totally. Okay. Beg your forgiveness. It
1: was. It's a great dinner though. I'm very happy. I'm not even finished with it yet.
0: Say our disclaimer. All Buddy.
1: Infor- <laughs> All information given in opinions voice on Doctor Bones and the Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only. Obviously. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah.
1: And do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Doctor Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available.
0: Ah, but what happens if a disaster occurs and you end up as the highest medical resource left to your family? What do you do when the ambulance is not just around the corner? Well, you show the world that you're smarter than a box of frogs by learning what to do for injuries and illness and good times or bad. That's what. And while you're at it, get some supplies and a medical kit to go along with that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the the lovely Nurse Amy's. The the lovely? Just make
1: up new words. The
0: lovely Nurse Amy's. (laughs) The lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at the store doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues in tough times. And you know what? They're designed by us, a real doctor and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare them for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff, or just talk to anyone who's ever bought one and you'll agree our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Hey, what's the gist, Survivalist? We learn as much from you as you do from us, so why not connect with us? It is so easy, and here's the lovely Nurse Amy to tell you how.
1: Absolutely. Please email us anytime at b o n e s P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at AOL.com. You can find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We also have a couple of pages on Facebook, Doom and Bloom, and... Doctor spelled out this time. Doctor Bones and Nurse Amy Show. We have Twitter at Prepper Show and don't forget our YouTube channel at Doctor, that's just DR, Bones Nurse Amy. All one word for some reason.
0: That's right. <laughs> I have no idea why that is, but that indeed is part of it. And let's see, what do we have here We do today? have an
1: Instagram but I'm not I don't remember what it is. We have, I think it's Doom and Bloom Medical. You
0: haven't done the Instagram for a while, which is I a know. mistake. Big mistake, buddy. Oh Instagram and Snapchat and all that stuff. You know what it is? That's all the rage.
1: I guess I just can't think of pictures every day. I, I have thousands of pictures, though. I know. You I guess have, have so a lot much of... you can
0: share. You really should.
1: And I love to take pictures. That's actually my passion. I, by the way, folks, before we started doing any of this, my hobby was photography. I don't think anybody knows that.
0: No, but you're really a good photog- photographer. You have really good equipment too. I took and...
1: classes. I have I have really nice equipment. Yeah. Um
0: you do our videos?
1: I do our videos. I and really enjoy taking pictures. If I just had a month or two just to do nothing but take pictures, that would be like a vacation.
0: Yeah, for it would me. be a lot of fun. And
1: every time we go away, I have fun
0: Taking pictures yeah. of yeah, yeah we have lots of beautiful pictures. My favorite
1: is macros, those real close close ups yeah. And I, you know it's funny they're called macros. They should be called micros.
0: Yeah I know doesn't Why that do they call make them any macros? sense? <laughs> crazy baby.
1: My macro lenses. I I can get. I have seen pollen on bees. I have pictures. Remember?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah I sure do. You have awesome awesome pictures. So they
1: get some real close ups there. Prize winners as they're a fun. Of fact. Anyway. Well, one of the challenges
0: facing the caregiver in austere settings is how to prevent infection in open wounds. That's a big deal. Oh, yeah. And after a disaster, people may be forced to perform activities of daily survival to which they're not accustomed. And guess what that causes? It causes injuries.
1: Yes. And,
0: of course, where there are injuries, there can be infections. And there's certainly going to be more likely in survival situations where hygiene and sanitation are, well... Sort of gone the way of the dinosaur. Yeah. Now, without advanced so, meta- like
1: I'm just going to say something about sanitation. Can you imagine how dirty people will be just after a, a handful of days without a shower? Right. Just grime and dirt accumulate, especially when what happens is we're not going to have air conditioning. So people are going to be, even if you're living in your house with your windows open, you're going to get dirtier because you have to go outside to get things, to do things. You have to keep your windows open so there's more dust and dirt coming into your house and dust Uh, we get oily and sweaty things are going to stick to us i mean it's just going to be and then to be filthy
0: and then somebody hands you an axe and tells you to chop some wood for sure and sure enough what could happen you can injure yourself and get cut that cut can become infected and once that cut becomes infected well, without advanced medical care, a bad outcome could easily be the end result. So that is something that that
1: is so, a challenge. But but not only that, but we're going to have to think about how to bathe ourselves. I'm going to take a little tangent here off to, you were talking about sanitation and hygiene. How are we going to bathe without the water working? Yep. You know, eventually if the water works <laughs> go down, we're not going to have water. Without electricity, you still have water. You don't have hot water, but you still have water. But it may come to a point where you don't have water either.
0: No, basically so you've got
1: to think about where you're going to get large amounts of water. If you can't get large amounts of water in one location, you're going to have to travel with it to where you are. Right. And, and put it in some sort of big— bucket or
0: you need a basin in the old a days huge
1: basin right in the old days they, they had, had a those basin tubs. and
0: a yeah right they had, yeah big they had
1: t- those metal tubs t- there're not going to be a lot of
0: baths occurring just it probably as many baths as occurred in the old west i and would guess and ha-
1: remember how they had to heat the water up you had to heat it up in small pots and pour it into right. the bath which it would cool off there when you were trying to heat more water i mean you're really gonna have to make plans for things you, you don't even think about. I'm sure it hasn't occurred to anyone to think about, well, how are we gonna bathe? So add that to your list, folks. All Besides right. the medical supplies, how yeah. are you gonna stay clean?
0: Well put you know, put some soap in your medical storage. It is a medical supply. I anything put it that in our bags. Two bigs right, three big that, bags. Anything that keeps keeps you cleaner is going to keep you healthier. But it is the going to be one of the big challenges for the wipes will medic.
1: help. The sandy wipes will help. Um,
0: but those can be also issues for uh, drying out. I mean, they can dry out oh, over the yeah. course of time. I mean, they're not going to be a a solution for very long. No, I
1: would think. no, you'll need the old water, and then you're going to have to figure out how to make soap. That was yeah. I remember us learning ashes, how to make soap. Right, that lie, was fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, very very cool stuff. Well, anyhow, and
1: dangerous. Speaking of yeah. wounds.
0: Well, it, making
1: soap it, right. is very dangerous for burns.
0: Right, sure, absolutely. You need fire for for that.
1: And the lye will burn you.
0: Exactly. And very caustic too. That's right. So, anyhow, that leaves us with what kind See, of See,
1: we circle back to when. I know, right. <laughs> what
0: kind what kind of affordable and simple method can you Use that would give you a good chance of preventing Or actually even treating infections in open wounds Mm -hmm. Well there is one method that was used as far back as World War I And that could be the answer for the medic And that is wound care with something called Dakin's Solution Now Dakin's Solution is the product of the efforts of an English chemist Henry Drysdale Dakin And a French surgeon named Alexis Carrel, Who was actually a Nobel Prize winner in medicine in their search for a useful antiseptic anesthet- an to save the life of wounded soldiers during World War I, they used something called sodium hypochlorite. You actually have sodium hypochlorite at home. That is household bleach. And baking soda to make a solution that actually had a pretty significant protective effect against infection. The chlorine in the solution had a type of solvent action on dead cells. That prevented the accumulation of bacteria in open wounds now by the way this is sort of funny that they were using chlorine for its protective effect against infection to save lives during World War I as at at the same time both sides in that war were also using chlorine in a gas or a gaseous form as an anti-personnel weapon actually blinded people caused severe burns in their lungs, on, on their skin It was a, a terrible weapon And it's just sort of funny to see that they actually did find a use That could heal wounds as well Actually a little bit of a surprise that they were able to do that uh, That long ago Well today, Dakin's solution is still considered effective enough I mean this 100 year old solution uh, consider it effective enough to be used after surgery and on chronic wounds like bed sores by many practitioners It's, it's very easily prepared, it can be made stronger or milder by varying the amount of bleach you use And you use it simply to clean the wound during dressing changes or by pouring onto the affected area Some people moisten dressings that are used uh, to put in an open wound We'll talk about that in just a short time uh, now let's talk about what the recipe is To make Dakin solution You're going to need just a few items And, this recipe, and we're going to make a video on this as well But this recipe is from uh, The Ohio State University's Department of Inpatient Nursing Start off with unscented Not extra concentrated Household bleach That sodium hypochlorite solution 5.25% And baking soda Sodium bicarbonate A pan with a lid a sterile measuring cup and spoon. Sterilize them uh, by boiling, or if if you do have power, you can put it, uh, the them in the dishwasher uh, in the heating cycle. Uh, and a sterile canning lid, uh, a sterile canning jar, and a sterile lid. So this is something you can also use in the dishwasher, or you can also boil. Of course, then wash your hands as you would before any medical procedure, and then put four cups of water, 32 ounces of water. Into the pan and cover it with the lid. Then boil it for 15 minutes with the lid on. Remove it from the heat source, and then use the sterile spoon to add a half a teaspoon of baking soda to the water. Then you'll add bleach in the amount needed, and that's going to depend a little bit on the strength you want. A full strength taken solution is 0.5 percent sodium hypochlorite. That's uh, you would add 95 milliliters or three ounces or six tablespoons for of uh, bleach to that solution for half strength you would use forty eight milliliters that's about uh, three tablespoons plus maybe half a teaspoon quarter strength would be uh, one tablespoon plus uh, maybe two teaspoons maybe one one and a half one one and two thirds uh... tablespoons uh, and one eighth strength would be just two and a half teaspoons so that's how much you would use to make one eighth, one quarter, one half strength, and full strength Dakin solution. Now, if you don't, re- if you didn't remember this, three teaspoons equals one tablespoon equals fourteen point seven milliliters. Two tablespoons equals one U.S. ounce. That's 29.5, 29.5 milliliters. Now, once can uh, oh, by the way, once you do that, what are you gonna do with it? Right, you let you let it simmer there, and then. Um, pour it into a sterile canning jar and close it with a sterile lid. And then the most important thing is that it does not like light and heat. And so store it in a dry, dry, dark, cool place. Um, You might consider even wrapping it with some aluminum foil. That's something that you can do as well. Uh, And that would certainly keep it dark. And you can actually... Have that around for about 30 days before you need to discard it, before it loses its potency and you need to discard it. For survival purposes, though, I would make it as I need it for wounds uh, that occur and or maybe just have a, a jar or two available at, at any one time. Because remember, once you open it, you got to discard the remainder after a day or so, uh, and it only lasts about a month, even if you don't open it. So the important... Oh, by the way, I will say that there is a company called Century Pharmaceutical uh, and they have what they call a buffered version of Dakin Solution that's thought to last about a year. So you can look that up, Century Pharmaceutical, Dakin's Solution, D-A-K-I-N. So what you want to do with the solution is you want to pour it into the wound once daily for mildly infected wounds and twice daily for heavily infected wounds with a lot of drainage of pus, things like that, uh, redness. Uh, Alternatively, you can most moisten, but not soak dressings used inside the wound. Um, And that, when I say used inside the wound, I mean dressings that do not touch the top of the skin. Dressings that go inside into the, the hole made by the open wound. And I would use a very, if you're going to use that method, I would use a milder strength, not full strength, and observe progress. I prefer you, I would prefer using it as a cleanser, honestly, as opposed to a regular component of a wet, wet dressing, because some studies show that use in this matter, uh, manner can be injurious to developing cells. Now, having said that, if you're dealing with a very severe infection as opposed to just trying to prevent one from happening, it may be reasonable to incorporate Dakin's solution into the dressing uh, because of just the severity of the infection. Dakin solution can also be used, believe it or not, as a mouthwash for infections inside the oral cavity. But you must never, ever, ever swallow it. That's bleach. You're not don't want to swallow bleach. Swish it for about a minute before spinning it out, uh, and use it no more than twice a week. Uh, full strength may irritate the skin, so consider uh, protecting skin edges with maybe with a little petroleum jelly or other protectant or moisture barrier. Look for evidence of skin rashes, burning, itching, hives, or blisters. Some people actually are allergic to chlorine. So if you're allergic to chlorine, do not use this. Uh, if uh, you see an irritation occurs in someone not allergic to chlorine, then you might consider dropping down to a milder strength or just discontinue it and try some other method. And it should be noted that, and the reason why I say that is, should be noted that not all practitioners agree about the benefits of Dakin solution. Some people believe that it's not much better than anything else and prefer Uh, Things like sterile normal saline, sterilized tap water. I think that those are certainly reasonable options if you don't have somebody that looks like they are going to get an infection or you're in a situation where an infection is not likely to occur. Well, then I would prefer actually that you use that. But if there's an infection going on or really high chance of uh, infection occurring, then consider the Dakin solution. Remember that antibiotics also play an important role in treating infected wounds. We talk about those a lot. And, of course, a good supply is important for any medic in a remote setting. You can certainly check out our website at doomandbloom.net if you want to find out more about antibiotics. We have many articles on it. Just use the search engine. However, I have to say that Dakin's is well-tolerated by patients. I looked at WebMD and found 17 different reviews on Dakin Solution And pretty much all of them were five star And so they Believe that, uh, I mean these folks at least Believe that Dakin Solution Treated them well and helped them Heal from their open wound And remember this is a simple Product to make, it's affordable The ingredients are affordable It's just another tool in the medical woodshed For scenarios where modern medical help is just plain old Not on the way, hey use all the tools In the woodshed Well, speaking of using all the tools in the woodshed, of course, we want to talk about natural products that do have medicinal benefits. And one of them is garlic. You know, everybody has talked about the health benefits of garlic. And it is the stuff of legend. Of course, you know, it's... Superstition maybe Of course you know Wearing garlic You know Vampires will I, I wore will it at night To try, repel and, you. try and Ward you off But you still <laughs> Still got in <laughs> Well I'm not a vampire There you go But it can oh, I help guess that's true It c- certainly can help Ward off a number Of medical issues Absolutely And so here's Nurse Amy to tell you A little bit about Garlic and maybe A little bit about How to grow garlic
1: Alright well uh, Some of this information Is from One of our favorite places to go visit, Mother Earth News Fair. They actually have a a little magazine called Guide to Healing Herbs. And this one, let's see if it has a date on it. Uh, Wow, a couple years ago. March of 2014. But you know what, folks? Garlic is garlic. And sure hasn't changed probably in hundreds, probably thousands of years. The article is called Garlic Goodness, and it's written by Roger D. Ron, and he says, The health benefits of garlic have long been the stuff of legends and superstition. While garlic probably won't save you from vampires like Dr. Bones and I were just talking about, it might, however, ward off a number of everyday evils, from the common cold to... And I think he might be going a little far here, but hey, you never know what helps. Possibly preventing cancer. And goodness knows we would all love to prevent that terrible thing from happening. And certainly if you've had it happen, you wouldn't want any other kind of cancer. So maybe you need to add some garlic to your diet. The first mention of garlic's healing qualities date back to 2500 B.C., when it was fed to slaves building the egyptian pyramids it was used to increase their stamina and also funny to prevent disease they even knew it back then it's amazing over the past 20 years a number of studies have shown that garlic may indeed reduce the risk of developing several types of cancer especially the ones of the digestive tract for example Findings from the Iowa Women's Study found that women who consumed the highest amounts of garlic had a 50% lower chance of colon cancer compared with women who had the lowest level of garlic consumption. Garlic's magic medicinal ingredient is thought to be allicin. It's a chemical that gives the plant its pungent smell. And I don't think you can forget garlic smell once you've smelled it. And it also is the powerful antibacterial and antiviral. What's great about garlic is that it may be the most flavorful medicine you'll ever take, a staple of Mediterranean and Asian cuisines. Garlic also goes well with seafood, pasta, most vegetables, and legumes such as beans, lentils, and chickpeas. But just as garlic can overpower bacteria, it can also overpower a dish and also overpower you if you're too close to someone who's just eaten it. One of the keys to... Satisfying garlic cookery is staying within your aromatic comfort zone. A time-tested trick for toning down garlic smell in dish and on your breath afterwards is to combine it with copious amounts of fresh raw herbs such as parsley, basil, and others whose chloroform, excuse me, chloroform, chlorophyll has a deodorizing effect. Fresh garlic is known for its antioxidant protection And of course we just talked about Its antibacterial, anticarcinogenic But also Anticoagulant Antifungal And as we spoke before Antiviral properties Just to name a few Its flavor stimulates the immune system Which is how they think it works Garlic also lowers fever By promoting sweating And helps to eliminate toxins from the body Garlic is also used to elevate good cholesterol, which we all want, the HDL, and to lower bad cholesterol, which is called the LDL. And it also helps lower blood pressure. It's helpful for heart disease and, as we talked about, in preventing cancer and also treating flu and colds, sore throats. You'd use it as a a garlic wash or even uh, taking maybe a table, excuse me, a teaspoon of crushed garlic with some honey you use one clove and taking that uh, that would be good for the sore throat and also you can make a a garlic tea to gargle and also drink it's good for earaches, intestinal bugs viral infections and more it rates best medicinally because it contains the highest content of its active ingredients so you want to make sure that you get fresh raw garlic not dried not something that's in the store that's in the jar they have crushed garlic in the in the store so you really want to have something that's just a clove once garlics cook unfortunately its chemistry changes and it offers other benefits that differ from the fresh garlic is safe for most people but consult your health care provider before using it if you take blood thinning medicine or you have a sensitive stomach or if you have an allergy, and I know you're, folks are out there saying, what do you mean an allergy to garlic? Believe it or not, there are food sensitivities, and unfortunately I have this, and I love garlic, by the way, food sensitivities to garlic. Who knew? I had no idea that actually was a thing. But let's talk about growing garlic, because unlike me down in South Florida, you folks can probably grow gar- uh, garlic in most other areas of the country, if you just do it at the right time, there's always a way to look up garlic for your grow zone. So once you find your grow zone, look at garlic and see if it's good for your grow zone. Like I said, most people who are not in the southernmost areas of Florida can probably grow it at some point or grow at least a variety of garlic that's good for you. There's different kinds, some that like and can tolerate harsher weather and some that like it a little milder so find out which garlic is best for you so let's talk about growing it plant garlic six to eight weeks before the ground freezes garlic likes full sun and loamy well-drained soil buy the bulbs from a grower seed supplier or at a farmer's market bulbs should be firm with no dark spots or mold Just before planting, carefully separate the bulbs into cloves by severing the bulb wrapping just above the cloves around the stem. Peel the wrapper away, then separate the cloves, being careful not to damage the root plate at the base. Wherever the root plate is broken or damaged, roots cannot form. Plant individual cloves one and a half to two inches deep and six to eight inches apart with the pointed end up and the root end down mulch immediately to prevent soil erosion and also to reduce weeds garlic takes about nine months pretty long growing season which is probably why I, there's just no way it's going to grow here because at some point it's 90 plus degrees for months during that time period so it takes about nine months to mature and should be kept well weeded and watered they take a lot of water however don't over water or fertilize during the last month in the ground, especially if that last month is June, July, or August, which of course depends on your climate. When garlic leaves begin to turn yellow and wither, keep an eye out. It's time to harvest when about half of them are still green and standing upright. So now you know how to plant garlic, you know some of the health benefits, and as long as you don't have a food sensitivity and you're not taking blood-thinning medicine, it should be a wonderful thing to add to your diet and also to use while you are sick. So I hope you guys don't get sick, but if you do, keep this in mind.
0: Hey, we talk about shock on this show. We've talked about it a few times, actually in the, just in the last few weeks. and. Of course, the idea of shock the public has is basically some kind of emotional thing, but in the medical community, the word shock refers to a physical imbalance between the oxygen needed in the body and the oxygen that's actually supplied to the cells in addition to a lack of nutrients that are being delivered. And this causes what they call cellular dysfunction. It causes uh, organs to fail and eventually can lead to death. It's a very serious condition. Now... You might be surprised that there are a lot of different types of shock. It's not just shock. It's either it could be hypovolemic shock caused by inadequate fluid volume. It could be hemorrhagic shock caused by hemorrhage. It could be cardiogenic shock associated with uh, heart problems, heart attacks, things like that. It could be anaphylactic shock caused by an allergic reaction. Even kids can get that. It could be septic shock or toxic shock, which are associated with infections. A hypoglycemic shock or even hyperglycemic shock. In other words, dysfunctions, either too little sugar in the body or too much sugar in the body. And it could be also related to nerve damage. Damage to the nervous system causes things called neurogenic shock. We'll talk about two or three of them today. I don't want to go. That would be the whole show if we talked about everything. But let's talk a little bit about hypovolemic shock, probably one of the most common ones. Uh, There needs to be enough red blood cells and water in the blood and water in the blood for the heart to push the fluids around within the blood vessels now when the body becomes dehydrated there may be enough red blood cells but the total volume of fluid is decreased and pressure within the entire system the blood pressure actually drops and when blood pressure drops the cardiac output drops that cardiac output is an amount of blood in that the heart can pump out in one minute if the blood pressure is very low, that goes down. It's, it's calculated as the stroke volume, how much blood each heartbeat actually pushes out, multiplied by the heart rate, how fast the heart beats each minute. If there's less blood in the system to be pumped, the heart speeds up to try to keep its output steady. That's when you see people with hypovolemic shock becoming very, what they call tachycardic, having a very, very high heart rate. Now, we don't realize that perhaps what water makes up of blood If the body becomes dehydrated Because of all this water Is lost from the system Or inadequate fluid intake The body really tries to maintain Its cardiac output By making the heartbeat faster But as the fluid losses mount This compensation by the body Just eventually fails It It just can't pump the heartbeat fast enough Or if it does It makes the heartbeat go into fibrillation Or some other terrible rhythm That can Cause death to occur. So, hypovolemic, hypo means low in uh, Latin, and volemic means volume. So, low volume shock is uh, due to water loss, is oftentimes the end point of many illnesses. a matter of fact, that's how some people wind up dying as a result of having, let's say, extraordinary measures no longer being used on them. So people that are in comas, for example, you can allow them to go into hypovolemic shock simply by not giving them intravenous fluids. That's sad, but sometimes that's what they do. Uh, Also, things like gastroenteritis, uh, intestinal infections or intestinal inflammation can cause significant water loss uh, from vomiting and diarrhea. That's a common cause of death in third world countries, not so much here. Heat exhaustion, heat stroke caused by excessive water loss. It's the summer, so it could certainly happen. Uh, you, that's what some people, how some people die as a result of a heat wave. And so your body loses all this water from sweating as it tries to cool itself. Now, people who have infections can lose significant amount of water also from sweating because they have maybe high fevers, things like that. People with diabetes who have... Uh, Very high sugars, they lose significant water because of the elevated blood sugar causes excess water to be excreted in the urine. In other words, the urine output in people with diabetes is very high, and that is a way that people with diabetes, especially out of control, can go into shock. Now, ultimately, in hypovolemic shock, the patient just can't replace the amount of fluid that was lost by drinking enough water, and the body, as a result, is unable to maintain blood pressure and its cardiac output. In all shock states, when cells start to malfunction, waste products start building up, and all these toxic um, products accumulate in the cells, and, well, that causes a downward spiral, as you can imagine, and the worsening environment in the body leads to cell death and eventually organ failure and eventually death of the entire organism. Now, a subset of hypovolemic shock is hemorrhagic shock, and that occurs specifically when there is significant bleeding that occurs very quickly. Trauma is obviously the most common example of bleeding or hemorrhage. Uh, People who have been caught in active shooter situations, they would bleed from uh, wounds, arterial wounds, very quickly, and go into hemorrhagic shock and then die. Uh, Bleeding from the gastrointestinal tract is also pretty common, stomach ulcers, uh, colon cancer, diverticulitis, things like that can cause a lot of bleeding. In women, excessive bleeding can occur from the uterus after childbirth or due to some other irregularity in the uterus. People with cancers or leukemia have the ability to, or the potential, to bleed spontaneously from a number of sources if their liver doesn't make enough clotting factors. People who are taking blood thinners like anticoagulant uh, Medications like Coumadin, they can bleed excessively as well. So a lot of different reasons why people can have a lot of bleeding. And blood loss has two effects on the body. First, loss of volume within the blood vessels to be pumped. uh, Basically, hypovolemic shock. And second, it has a reduced oxygen-carrying capacity because of the loss of the red blood cells. The red blood cells are the cells in your body that carry oxygen, right? Otherwise, healthy people can... Lose up to 20% of their blood volume Maybe twice the amount that a person Donates at a blood drive Without becoming really symptomatic Becoming extraordinarily weak Lightheaded uh, high uh, Heart rate, low blood pressure Shortness of breath It it is a cascade As the more blood you lose The worse it gets So the treatment of hemorrhagic shock Depends on the cause Of course finding and controlling The source of bleeding We talk a lot about that On this show And that's a can't tell you how important that is that's the most important thing you want to stop the blood from leaving the body intravenous fluids of course are very helpful to uh, resuscitate this kind of person you need basically enough fluid to replace the fluid volume uh, within the blood vessels blood transfusion isn't always mandatory you can use normal saline or ringer's lactate uh, for a limited amount of blood loss but uh, the bone marrow has the possibility that it can replenish red blood cells that were lost. It just doesn't do it immediately. So if you can get the bleeding control, the patient is stable. In other words, has a reasonable blood pressure and pulse and things like that. Then you might be able to wait for the bone marrow to replenish the red blood cells. Uh, transfusing people does have its risk, risks, and you know it should only be done when absolutely necessary, of course. Let's talk a little bit about cardiogenic shock. Cardiogenic shock occurs when the heart muscle is damaged. That's most commonly seen, I guess, in a heart attack, right? In a heart attack, the heart muscle dies, no longer does its job, can't pump enough blood to meet the needs of the body. Your heart is divided into four chambers, and each one of them needs living muscle, right, to perform its function. And when that heart tissue dies, the circulation of blood and therefore oxygen in the body... Is compromised, and in there, there you have cardiogenic shock. When the heart loses its ability to pump blood to the rest of the body, the blood pressure is going to drop. Uh, there may be enough red blood cells and oxygen; they just can't get to the cells that need them. The heart, remember, is a muscle itself. It needs a blood supply itself to work. And co- these blood vessels are called coronary arteries. And when a heart attack occurs, the blood supply to that part of the to part of the heart is lost, and that can stun, irritate the heart muscle. So that it isn't able to beat with an appropriate squeeze, even if it doesn't die completely outright. So it can't squeeze the chamber of the heart enough to push blood out to the rest of the body, and this decreases the cardiac output of, and without a reasonable cardiac output, you're not delivering oxygen to the cells of the body. Now, other causes that can compromise cardiac output are irregular rhythms or electrical disturbances of the heart Uh, ventricular tachycardia is a common one heart block is another one and then there's cardiac tamponade and that's where uh, this you'll see in trauma where a a chest wound causes blood to fill up inside the heart lining the the heart is encased in a lining called the pericardium and if there's blood between the pericardium the lining and the heart itself well that causes pressure on the heart that prevents the uh, ventricles and the atrium the the uh, chambers of the heart, from expanding fully. And there, you really can't do too much in the pre-hospital environment for this condition. And basically, what you need is the drainage of this fluid with a large-bore needle, and that is pretty tricky. That's, done, that's, that's tricky under, doing, under sonogram, under x-ray, and other kinds of diagnostic imaging. And under primitive conditions, it probably would rarely be carried out successful Especially if you're in a really austere setting, really no chance of getting that person eventually to a cardiac unit. So really, anything you, anything you do, cardiac cardiogenic shock, equals a big a trouble in Dodge City. Hey, you know we are thrilled to be part of Jack Spearco's Survival Podcast, a very popular show. Jack does a show about five times a week. He's been doing it for years. I think he's got got. Probably 2,000 shows under his belt. We're probably at a sh- about at show 350, so I am pretty impressed at that. I can tell you that much. And we're very happy to be part of his expert Council We oftentimes take questions from his audience and we give them, uh, I mean, some of these questions are actually pretty good and so some questions that you really should be thinking about if you're not. And some of them relate to survival. Some of them relate to just everyday life. And this is one of those. This is a question about HPV. HPV is human papillomavirus. In the past, it was thought to simply cause uh, genital warts on people or or warts in the vocal cords. But lately, it has been identified as indeed the cause of a number of cancers, uh, especially especially cervical cancer which it i believe it causes probably 11 to 12,000 cases of it a year many of these cases occur in young women and indeed in young men although it doesn't occur there it can occur in other places uh, at orally and other places and it is something that takes some years to develop and so they figured out that there is a vaccine that you can actually use that might prevent this however parents are asked to give that vaccine to their child when that child is between the ages of about 10 and 13 before they're sexually active in other words because it is past sexually as a matter of fact passed so, so much so much so that probably half of the country has it in one of its subtypes So we're going to go ahead and play you my question and answer on a recent expert counsel show where I address the concerns of a father regarding the human papillomavirus vaccine. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Mike who writes... I have a question for old Doc Bones and would like to get your opinion as well. My daughter's 12 years old and our family doctor is pushing for her to get the HPV vaccine. I have concerns about the side effects and effectiveness about this vaccine. What is your and Dr. Bones' opinion of this? Is it worth the risk of the side effects? It's my understanding it only protects for five to eight years after receiving it and that 95% of people that get HPV never develop cervical cancer. So I question just how effective it would be. The government's pushing that both males and females get this vaccine around the age of 12. It's my understanding that some states are even requiring it. The fact that the government says you need it is probably most worrisome to me. Thanks, and 73. Hmm, Mike, W-A-3-R-F-E. I don't know that code, Mike, but I'm sure it means something to the rest of the members support brigade. Mike, Human papillomavirus is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the United States, with 79 million people having it and 14 million new cases every year. It's so common that nearly all sexually active people get it at some point of their life. There are 170 different subtypes of HPV, 40 of which are known to cause health problems, including genital warts and cancer of the male and female sexual organs, even throat cancer. You can get HPV by having vaginal, anal, or oral sex with anyone that has the virus. Most people with HPV don't know they're infected, and they never develop symptoms or health problems from it, as you say. Having said that, though, HPV can be passed to others even when the infected person has no sign of it, and there's no sure way to know which people have HPV and which ones who have HPV will develop cancer or other health problems in the future, usually years down the road. Before HPV vaccines were introduced, about 350,000 women and men sought medical help for genital warts caused by HPV every year. About 1 in 100 sexually active adults in the U.S. has them at any given time. In the United States, there are about 27,000 cases of cancer due to HPV that occur each year, 11,000 of which are cancers of the cervix, the neck of the womb. Interestingly, the subtypes of HPV that cause cancer do not cause warts and vice versa now about the hpv vaccine a vaccine exists indeed that protects against the most common subtypes of hpv not every subtype since the vaccine works best if given before a person becomes sexually active the cdc centers for disease control and and prevention recommends that all boys and girls ages 9 to 13 should get vaccinated vaccines given in two doses with the second given six months after the first catch-up vaccines can be given to males through age 21 females through age 26 if they weren't previously vaccinated risks of the vaccine include feigning spells at the time of administration soreness at the injection site and there is a slightly elevated risk of blood clots in the veins now serious issues though occur It should be noted, much less frequently than the number of HPV-related cancer cases every year. It's important to know that. If a decision is made to avoid the vaccine, strict use of condoms every time that person has sex can lower but not eliminate the risk of getting HPV. Strict monogamous relationships also less likely to spread HPV. It's difficult, though, to predict this. The decision comes down to this, Mike. Can you know how likely it is that your daughter might get a dangerous type of HPV? Can you know how many sexual partners she'll have, whether they'll have HPV? Well, you probably don't have an ability to know that. I've seen many cases of cervical cancer in women and genital warts in women and men. I have operated on these people, and if their parents saw these people post-op and were asked, did they wish that they took them to get the vaccine earlier in life? Well, what do you think the answer would be? This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. So that is a pretty interesting question. Of course, in many cases, you're not going to have a type of HPV that causes cervical cancer or a cancer of another type, but what about the significant number of kids that wind up in young adulthood getting this type of cancer, what would parents, if they knew that was going to happen, what would they have said? So interesting decision-making to be done for anyone who has kids, especially uh, a young girl these days, although it is recommended of both girls and boys. Hey, give me a second to get on my soapbox here, and I just want to talk a little bit about how important it is to have a survival medic in the family in a long-term survival setting i got to tell you it's going to be a lucky family or group that has some kind of physician or other formally trained medical professional among its members and when there's no doctor somebody in your group has to be assigned the responsibilities of being the group medic and that person's going to make the difference between success and failure life and death even for a community that's lost access to modern medicine. I mean, this person, the survival medic, knows they've been handed a major challenge. There are gonna be some tough decisions ahead, and those who step up and take responsibility for the medical well-being of their loved ones, boy, these people are special individuals. They've got a special mission. If you're one of those individuals, please, please accept my sincere thanks. You are completing my mission And that is to put a medically prepared person in every family. Now, if you're the person that's been chosen to pick up the flag, don't forget your assignments. Gain some knowledge and training. Some of it's book training, and some of it's going to be hands-on training. The more you learn, the more comfortable you're going to be in your role as medic. Now, these courses could be available through your municipality. Better check through City Hall, or even through folks like us who are willing to travel the country to teach medical procedures. We do it all the time. We'll be doing it all this year. You might begin also by studying basic first aid and getting a good book on maybe family medicine for your library. You should have a survival library that tells you not only strategies for making a fire and for building a shelter but also for keeping yourself and your family healthy. You got to learn as much anatomy and physiology as possible. Remember, anatomy is the blueprint of the body, physiology is the operating manual. If you got a working if you have a working knowledge of these two subjects, you're just going to be in a better position to understand disease and injury and that is so essential for you to become a su- successful medic now at the same time research some alternative disciplines like herbalism i if you believe some event's going to occur it's going to take you off the grid long term well just take it from me the commercial stuff's going to run out at some point and when the drugs run out you're going to need a base of knowledge about plants in the area that might have medicinal benefits Many times a successful medic is going to cultivate their own herbs. I have a nice herb garden. We have a beautiful herb garden in our yard right here. Specifically, we have it for the purpose of having them available for emergencies. And so we actually won't run out of things that we need for particular purposes. Some things we can grow, some things we can't. Depends on your grow zone. So what are some of the characteristics of the effective medic? The most important one is to just have common sense. If you've got Got a common sense person With good medical supplies A few medical books And willingness to learn They can be successful In keeping their family healthy In disasters for years And besides a sensible Practical nature You have to have a calm manner Sick or injured people Take comfort from A level-headed caregiver And so that's very, very important You really have to be sure That you keep people calm That what they tell you Is going to stay Between you and them You remember that confidentiality is a very important asset for the medic Uh, sometimes information that you get from your patients are going to include things that people don't want to be made public don't disclose anything that makes you seem untrustworthy you don't have the trust of the community you serve you're just not going to be effective as a medic there's one last essential characteristic of the successful medic and that's self preservation this can, can sound a little strange i guess but. Remember, you're an indispensable resource to your entire group. If you place yourself in harm's way all the time, you're eventually going to find yourself as a patient more often than you or anyone else in your group would like. Always determine if you can care for a victim without placing yourself in undue danger. Abolish all threats beforehand if you can. Somebody heard a gunshot and and somebody's laying there with a gunshot wound stands to reason there's a guy with a gun out there. Don't become the next casualty whatever you do. That's all we have for this week. I thank you so much for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alton, MD, and Amy Alton, ARMP, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.dubinbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
1: Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.